excited that you are here on this uh, Mother's Day. Uh, we do recognize, you know, that not for everyone is this a celebration of a day. You know, uh, some have had a loss, you know, uh, some have had death, you know, some have had pain and suffering. And so we recognize that. And so uh, a couple things that we want to do, you know, here at Valley Real Life is uh, be sensitive to that, you know, while also honoring moms. And so what we want to do as you leave today, if you are female, so not just moms, but if you are female, uh, you're going to get uh, one of these cards on the way out. You know, on the front, it talks about, you know, uh, for all ladies, just the impact that moms make, but also some of the loss and the suffering if you've not had been able to have kids, you know, all that kind of stuff, kind of every back and forth that you'll see, you know, as it's displayed there on the back, uh, ladies, it's going to give you information about our women's ministry. You know, so there's an if gathering, different things that are coming up that you want to be aware of. Also, you know, for those, you know, uh, ladies, uh, fill out, this is in your program. It's a different card. Uh, you're going to be raffled into a drawing that you're going to want to, you'll be a part of a lot of free giveaways, you know, that'll take place this week. If you fill this out, you can turn it in a connecting point as you leave. And lastly, and obviously most importantly, ladies, as you leave, you will get a salted caramel, specially just for you on this Mother's Day, Right? You know, some of you, 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 you dads are sitting there like, well, what are they going to do for Father's Day? You guys get a book. I mean, it's just going to be, <laughs> it's going to be awesome. You know, hope to see you in a couple of weeks. You know, uh, so just in the continuing of tradition, you know, uh, while being sensitive, we do want to honor moms. And so if you are a mom, can you please stand because you have been so loving, sacrificial in our lives. Can you just stand up if you're a mom today? We just want to honor that. Thanks for being here, moms. Now, uh, before we jump in you know, to today, just a couple quick announcements. One is next week's our next DNA class. If you're thinking about what it means to be a permanent part of what God's doing here, part of this family, you want to go more from attending to saying, this is my church home, that's the class to go to. So you can sign up in the lobby you know, as you leave. It lets us know how much booklets, child care, food to provide as well. Uh, lastly, uh, is uh, in, on Wednesday, Steve... Uh, Alan, Jake, you know, Douglas and myself are going to be headed to Africa. And so just be praying as we go to Kenya, you know, uh, via Uganda and kind of minister to the partners that we have there in partnership with Post Falls. There's a conference that we're going to be helping to host as well as bringing our China connection, our Philippine connection, Uganda connection to that point as well. And so we'll be gone, you know, for about two weeks. So you just pray along those lines. Now today... Hester Christensen, you know, and I are going to be tag teaming this message, and I can promise you, you are in for a real treat. Uh, Hester is in charge of our women's ministry. Uh, she is a great communicator. Uh, she is an awesome mom, you know, by the way, and she has a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and so before Hester comes up, uh, let me kind of start with this. Uh, where do you find yourself thinking that you're in charge or that uh, you are in a positions of authority? Where do you find yourself? Uh, for some of you, you might instantly think of work. Uh, you're the shift lead. You're the manager. You're the owner. Uh, for others of you, you might find yourself in a classroom, like I'm the teacher, I'm the coach. Uh, what gives you the authority to be in charge? Most of you, it's because you've been given the job title, so you've been given responsibility, and with responsibility comes authority. Now, since it is Mother's Day, uh, parents, specifically moms, um, what gives you authority over your kids? What gives you the right? And it was already mentioned, <laughs> you birthed them, right? You birthed them. So you're like, okay, I have ownership 
authority over this child, you know, because I'm the one, you know, that carried this child until they were born. Now, when they're three years old or two, you know, ours were the awful threes, not the terrible twos, you know, uh, they begin to question that authority. And uh, you get a chance to lovingly, you know, sometimes not so much, uh, walk through, you know, uh, that period of potential rebellion. Now, that period uh, is tame uh, compared to the next season uh, when they become teenagers. And you may or may not experience this in the course of their teenage years. Mom, I can do what I want with whomever I want and whenever I want because it's my life, it's my stuff, etc. I asked my mom, you know, uh, who happens to be here, you know, this today. Uh, by the way, I haven't spent Mother's Day with her, you know, in like eight or nine years. So she flew up to help take care of the kids while I'm gone in there. So mom, wave. You know, my mom is here today. Go and stand, you know, and you that as well. So I asked her, I said, I said, hey, mom, you know, I know this is going to be a really hard question, but I am having a hard time thinking of any time that I ever questioned your authority. You know, as the perfect child, this is going to be painful for you to process through because I can't think of anything. And so, you know, her text message is like three page long. And I was like, this isn't funny, you know. Uh, but one of the things that she did remind me about how I question her authority is oftentimes when I was in junior high on Saturday morning, uh, she would say, hey, before you go out and play, you need to clean your room. More often than not, she would uh, recognize that the speed in which I cleaned my room was probably not up to the standard in which she had thought of when she asked me to do that chore, especially when she walked in and everything looked really nice until she looked under the bed or in the closets where I just shoved everything as fast as I possibly could to have the parents that it was clean. And, and so you can have this appearance like, mom, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to leave. And she's like, nope, nope. And I'm like, but it's my room, right? That's the thought process of a junior high kid. It's my room uh, to which she lovingly you know, can respond back and say, well, actually, you are leasing this room for free because you don't pay anything on this. And at any point, way or form, I can decide that you're no longer in this room because you don't really own anything, which as a junior high kid is a little shocking and disturbing, you know, uh, but that's this idea. Now, the reason I mention all this is that we're in a series that we began last week called Jesus is the Answer for Everything. And what we're exploring is the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And just as a reminder, the sufficiency of Christ is to be sufficient, is to be all satisfying. That Jesus provides all our needs for salvation and human flourishing. And Hester's going to talk about that in just a few moments. The second part is the supremacy of Christ. Now, what the supremacy means is the supreme control and rule of Christ who reigns over all things. Over all things. So speaking of supremacy, what makes Jesus in charge? How, how does he have the right to be in charge? Which is what they were asking when Paul wrote this book in Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verses 15. We'll get to the mid-20s in terms of the verses we're going to look at. And we always want to invite you to you know, download the YouVersion Bible app or just know there's Bibles in the back as a gift from us to you. There'll be some verses on the screen, but not all, because we want to continue to train ourselves to look into God's Word with our own eyes. But in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says three things about what makes Jesus supreme. What makes him, gives him the authority to be in charge. And, and so in verse 15 is where he starts. He says, Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Jump down to verse 19. He says the same thing. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So Jesus, what Paul says, what makes him in charge is Jesus is in charge because he is God in human form. So you're like, okay, that would probably give him some authority if he was God in human form. So he was reminding of him of that. Uh, a second thing that he says is go back to verse 15. 
Jesus existed before anything was created. And he is supreme, there's that word, over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Jesus made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. (coughs) So the second thing is not only is Jesus in charge, supreme, because he is God, but secondly, he's in charge because he created the world. Just like you birthed the child, he created the world. Now, some of you might say, wait, 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 I thought Jesus was the baby in the manger. I mean, isn't that what we celebrate every December? That, that that's where Jesus started was through Mary in the manger. And you're like, no, no, you actually have to go back a lot further. We don't have time to dissect this in, in detail. But in Genesis 1.26, notice the language here. When God is creating the world, he says this, then God said, let us make man in our image. Notice the plurality of us. To be like us. <clears throat> they will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and etc. etc. goes on from there. And so he was there at the beginning of creation. Jesus was there. Now, we don't have time to talk about we serve one God. There's only one God with the three parts, God the Father, God the Son through Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. That'll be a later sermon as we kind of dissect what that means and what that looks like in our real lives. But the important part that Paul is making is that Jesus is God. He created everything. It's all made by him and for him, so that makes him in charge. And then he has one more thing he says in verse 18. He says, Jesus Christ is also the head of the church which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme, that's the third time he used that word, over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. So Jesus is in charge of the church because he created and he died for it. Matthew chapter 16, one of Jesus' closest followers, uh, Peter, he looks at him and he says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus created the church, came up with the idea, instilled it, and gave authority over it. In Ephesians, actually, Paul even tells us that Christ is head of the church, that he's the savior, that he died for the church because of how much he loved her. Now, this is not my church. This is not my world, and this is not my life. As soon as we start taking authority, just like our kids try to buck against our own authority, we start heading down a path that actually leads to pain, more pain, I should say, suffering and destruction. And so we want to continue to be a church that says, nope, it's your church, Jesus. We want to continue to be a people that says, this is your creation. This is not my ownership of anything. I'm just a steward and a manager in the same way that my mom was over me when I was in junior high in the house. And this is not even my life. It is yours. Why? Because Jesus is supreme. So I'm going to invite Hester up to continue on with the rest of the others. Can you give Hester a hand? Thank you, Dan, and happy Mother's Day, ladies. We're so glad that you're here today. <clears throat> what Dan shared about Jesus being in charge reminds me of a situation with my four-year-old nephew that happened a few years ago, who we affectionately call Dylan the villain. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we're there visiting my brother's family and Dylan the villain. <laughs> oh, you got to love four-year-olds. He proceeds to get on the four-wheeler where the keys are in the ignition and all you have to do is press the button and he's hunched up on this thing and he's ready to do it. And Uncle Dave says, Dylan, 
get, get off the four-wheeler. He turns and he looks at Uncle Dave, gives him that sly look, and didn't move. <clears throat> Uncle Dave says, Dylan, you need to get off the four-wheeler. Dylan turned again and looked at him and said, no. To which Uncle Dave marched right over to him, and as Uncle Dave was walking towards him, you can imagine the little four-year-old scurried down the four-wheeler, and then he marches away. What's so funny, Dylan stands there like this, and he looks at Uncle Dave and he says, you're not my best friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like Dylan, we struggle with authority. He was fine until he realized someone else was in charge. Life's a lot easier, isn't it, when we think we're in charge. But the minute someone or something takes over, we have a hard time. God is in charge, whether we like to admit it or not. And when we let him be our best friend and govern our lives, it impacts our past, our present, and our future. In this passage, we're going to see what life is like when Jesus is in charge and reigns supreme in our lives. That's why the content of Colossians 1, 15 through 19 that Dan just shared with us is so important. It's really foundational when we look to the remainder of this section of Scripture. When we tie in verses 20 through 23 into the prior verses, a really beautiful picture emerges. And as Dan mentioned in verses 15 through 19, Paul is clearly articulating the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. He leaves no shred of doubt as to who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and why this matters to us. Paul proclaims Jesus is the one. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. There is no other. And because Jesus is everything listed in 15 through 19, not only is the fullness of God complete in him, Paul reveals in this section that the reconciliation of man is fulfilled by him. In these verses, Paul looks at our past, our present, and our future. So we're going to dive right in to verse 20. Let's take a look at our past. This is where Paul shows us what we were before Christ. Verse 20, he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who are once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So the first thing that Paul tells us is that we were far away from God. This term translates alienated, isolated, abandoned, alone, estranged, shut out from intimacy or fellowship. Paul is saying anyone outside of Christ is separated. It, that doesn't sound too good, does it? But it gets worse. Paul then tells us that we are God's enemies. This term communicates hostile, loathsome, detestable, in opposition, or at odds. And Paul tells us why. Because of our evil thoughts and actions. In short, sin makes us enemies of God. We are guilty as charged, and we deserve punishment. Without Christ's death, we remain condemned because we cannot save ourselves. We are doomed. Sounds like bad news, right? I got to know my friend Barbie when my family moved to a small community in Oregon. She started attending the same church as my family, and it didn't take long for us to reach out to her. She was really drawn to us. 
and we began to spend many Sunday afternoons together. Slowly, through time, she began to reveal snapshots of her past, somehow knowing that we would still love her and embrace her and accept her. And the church people didn't shun her either. They loved her as well. When Barbie was 16, she first became pregnant. She quit school halfway through her junior year. And after the baby was born, she gave him up for adoption. A few years later, and two back-to-back marriages failed, leaving her with two young boys. American culture during the 60s condoned peace and love, and she fit right in with her hippie friends. And with that era, experimenting with drugs was also a normal part of her life. Barbie was a drifter. She roamed from city to city, state to state, often living in commune settings. Sometimes she'd be down at the river, other times she'd be in the back of a van. And for a time, she even lived at the infamous address at 710 Ashbury Street in San Francisco, California, where the rock band The Grateful Dead lived. Yes, Barbie was friends and roomies with Jerry Garcia. The hippie revolution in the Hayton Ashbury district of California was intense, and she was living it up, you could say. Through the following years of Barbie's life, really continued to spiral out of control. Several more moves, an unstable lifestyle, four more flower children. She had multiple threats from the state of losing her kids, but she wanted to settle down. She wanted to start over. She wanted something different. So she and her boyfriend at the time moved with all the kids to this community in Oregon, and this is when I got to know her. Barbie was far away from God. And maybe some of us here are thinking, man, I ain't so bad after hearing part of Barbie's story. I mean, anyone who lives with the Grateful Dead must have purchased a one-way ticket to hell, right? Seven kids with five different men, only married to two. But are we really any different than Barbie? Perhaps our sin is just manifested a little bit differently. Simply put, sin is missing the mark or wandering from the path of uprightness. There is past sin in my life that I have regret over, things I've allowed myself to participate in, temptations I have given into, situations I should have never allowed myself to be exposed to. But here's the truth this morning, church. My sin may stink differently than your sin, but it's all stench in the nostrils of God. That's right. So we're going to do a little activity here. You want to tell your neighbor, my sin may stink differently than your sin, but it's all stench in the nostrils of God. Go ahead. Okay, now that we've got that settled, we must understand the impact of sin because it connects to our past and our present. Romans 3.23 reminds us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if there is one takeaway, one nugget of wisdom that I would love for every one of us to walk out those doors today, it would be this. There is no sin too small that God will overlook 
Yet there is no sin too big that Jesus did not overcome. Did you hear that? There is no sin too small that God will overlook. Yet there is no sin too big that Jesus Christ did not overcome. But culturally, we don't really like to talk about sin. We don't like to admit defeat. We don't want to admit the wrongs that we've committed. We're afraid to fail. We want to preserve our reputation. But we can't avoid talking about sin. Sin is the cause of the cross. Yet the cross is the cure for sin. Paul's point in verse 21 is that we were once far away and enemies of God because of sin, which means we need a Savior. Now, I know some of us would probably prefer to talk more about God's love. And God is love, but God is also just and holy. And we cannot emphasize one over the other because they go together. We cannot bridge the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. The chasm of sin separates us from God. And we can't make up the difference. But Jesus did. Because God is holy and just, sin needed to be punished. But because he is love, he provided Jesus to step in and take our place on the cross and took our rightful punishment. You see, one side of the pendulum tends to minimize sin, sugarcoat it so it doesn't sound so bad, or label it a little differently than what it is. But when this happens, we start to think maybe we're mm, a little better than what we are. Maybe we're not really in need of being rescued as much as we actually do. It's tempting to try to categorize sin thinking it's pretty small compared to maybe what others have done, or diminishing sin by thinking it's not that big of a deal. Trying to trivialize sin's impact doesn't diminish its control over us or curb our responsibility. Why would we ever try to sprinkle glitter on a pile of garbage? There was a time when I was a young girl when I willfully disobeyed. There was more than one time. <laughs> My family was kind of known as the granola family, if you will. We had tofu burgers. There were no beef in our house. We had tofu. That's right. And powdered milk, because it was better for you. That's right. And we did not put sugar on our oatmeal. Oh, no. We ate those, that oatmeal just plain as day. Well, I wanted some sugar on my oatmeal. And my mom came into the room and I was getting ready for school, and I'm like, Mom, can I please have some sugar? Can I just put some sugar on my oatmeal? She's like, no. So she walked out of the room, and I walked over to the sugar bowl. I'm like, dude, you guys get it for your coffee. Why can't I have it for my sugar? My oatmeal. Come on, what's up with that? So I went over, and I got my spoon. I dished, dished. Oh, I got some good heaping spoonfuls on this one. And I mixed it in really quick because I wanted to do it before she came back. I went and sat up on the staircase, which overlooked our kitchen. And oh, man, oh, look. Dude, oatmeal with sugar is good. So I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was the delight in my face that kind of gave it away. But when my mom came in the other room, she says, Esther, did you put sugar on your oatmeal? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, come here. Come over here. I want to taste it. 
Oh, crud. I was hosed. So I went over and I handed her my bowl of oatmeal and she took a couple bites and she said, you march up to your room right now, young lady. I'll be up there in a minute. Ever heard that? Hmm? So I went up to my room and I was waiting for my punishment and she marched up with the love stick. And, <laughs> oh yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. That's right. And I had to lay across the bed and my mom was really creative with discipline and it went down like this. S-U-G-A-R. Don't you ever put sugar on your oatmeal again. And here's one more. Whack. Don't you ever lie to me again. <sighs> my mama didn't mess around. <laughs> when I told one of my girlfriends of this story, she said, well, Hester, I guess you can be grateful it wasn't sweet and low. Oh, I know. I know that's a funny story. I'm, you know, I'm just trying, trying to bring some levity here to the topic of sin, but honestly, God, God takes sin pretty seriously because it's rebellion. And the problem with sin is that there's an I right in the middle of it. See, sin is the one thing that has completely corrupted mankind. Until we understand the reality of our sinfulness, we will never grasp the enormity of God's salvation. The other side of the pendulum tends to magnify sin, which can cause an individual to question or doubt, how in the world could God ever forgive me for what I've done? Whatever that sin is that you fill in the blank. And when this happens, sadly, an individual is really doubting the sufficiency of Christ's death to cover all sin. That's how my friend Barbie felt. I remember one Sunday afternoon on the patio, I listened as she cried and she just shared. She told me that she always felt like the Liz Taylor of her family, had so much shame and guilt over the sin in her life and the years of rebellion and the shame that followed her. She felt like she'd wasted so many years. I also sensed at that time that God was wooing her and softening her heart to his love and his grace. See, Jesus' death doesn't just cover some sin or only the really big sins. His death covers all sin for all time for all mankind because there is no sin too small that God will overlook Yet there is no sin too big that Jesus Christ did not overcome. Well, let's take a look at the present. And what Paul tells us is in verse 22, where he shows us what we are because of Christ. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result... He has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Our alienation from God created a need for reconciliation. Before Christ, in the past, enemies is what we were. But now, Paul says, we are reconciled. Reconciled means to bring back 
into harmony something that was estranged. And as we previously noted, we were alienated. We were estranged from God. But Jesus totally and completely fulfilled the reconciliation of man by bringing us back into right relationship with God, by taking our place on the cross. We are no longer at odds with God. See, God's plan was to repair what was broken, to restore what was damaged, to reunite what was separated, to fully bring back to complete peace our relationship and intimacy with God. You know, I really love how Ephesus ministry says it when they say, the gospel tells us we are more broken than we know, but we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. Jesus has completely changed our status. Paul is building a case in these verses. Because Jesus is, we are. The result of our reconciliation is that we are holy. We are blameless. We stand before him without a single fault. A life of condemnation is now free from accusation. We're no longer his enemy. We're his friend. We're no longer alienated. We're adopted. We're no longer hostile. We're holy. We're no longer at fault. We're forgiven. We're no longer condemned. We are cleansed. God has brought our lives from the city landfill to the castle. And Jesus's provision at the cross has literally changed our position in Christ. This is some seriously good news. I remember the Sunday that Barbie surrendered her life to Jesus. Although raised in the church, she never knew the one who died for the church. She was ready to empty her life, to be filled with new life in Jesus, to receive forgiveness and be reconciled to God. Our family witnessed a radical change. The transformation of her life was so obvious in how she loved other people. Her awareness of the hurt and the needs of others was really remarkable. She cared for people. She took time to really see how they were doing. She made time for relationships. She sought out the lonely, the unwanted, the unloved the down and out. She had frequent guests in her home, always offering a place to stay. One time, a homeless man stayed with her family until he was able to get back on his feet. Another time, a, mom, a single mom with a son needed a place for a few months, and they too were welcomed under Barbie's roof. Another family, traveling from the coast, got stranded because of the weather, and they found shelter with her as well. Another family moved to town and quickly became known as the druggies. Guess who reached out to them and invited them into her heart as well as her home? They too met Jesus. Her family used to joke around that they never knew who would be on the couch each morning. <laughs> One Thanksgiving our family spent together, she invited this man named Howard. Howard was known by everyone, but liked by very few he had the intelligence, uh, mentally disabled, with the intelligence of about a five-year-old. 
and many people felt he was a nuisance, but not Barbie. And neither was a man named Jeff, who after brain surgery didn't quite recover. It was so fun to watch Barbie grow in her faith. Several years came and went, and her love for others continued. So genuine, so kind and thoughtful. A woman of humble means was beyond generous with her home, her time, her possessions. And people were just so comfortable around her. And I think in large part because she had no pretense to judge another. She just loved people really well. She was passionate for others to be in a relationship with Jesus so that they could experience the same reconciliation that she had. Barbie was no longer far from God. She exchanged her sin for the righteousness of God. And her transformation is a powerful testimony to God's redemptive work. She was becoming in practice what Jesus declared her in position which should be true of all Jesus' followers, that we are living in practice what we have been declared in position. Do you know what the most beautiful thing in the world is? Newborn baby? Maybe. Yes, but not quite. Maybe it's all of the national parks all together in one. That would be pretty spectacular, right? No, that's not it either. It's not the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl. It's not Gonzaga winning the NCAA championship either. The most beautiful thing in the world, the most astounding thing in the world, is when the great, magnificent love of God encounters the heart of a sinner and they are set free from what they were to become what they are in Jesus. That is remarkable. It is the most incredible thing in the world, and it is breathtaking to witness. Now, if reconciled is what we are, as Paul tells us, then let's not reach back to what we were. And what I mean is we remember what we were so that we can rejoice in what we are. Too many Christians live in the shadow of their sins, hindered, struggling with their past. But we are forgiven. We have been set free. We are not defined by our past. We are defined by our new position in Christ. Psalm 103 reminds us, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now we can certainly be experiencing logical consequences for sin, and godly sorrow should lead us to repentance, but not shame that would cause us to repel the cross. When we stop looking through the rearview mirror, we'll be able to focus more on what we are and less on what we were. And let's not remember what we were, but only remember so that we can rejoice in what we are. Lastly, here in this section, Paul addresses the future and how we should continue to live in verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Paul is challenging us here. He's saying, don't shift from the hope you have in the gospel, the good news of what we are compared to what we were because of Jesus' death. Remember, 
Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and he is addressing a threat to the church because he knows that there are false teachers who doubted the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Everything described in verses 15 through 19, they questioned and tried to diminish who Jesus was. And Paul is trying to correct this false teaching. The truth that Paul is referring to in verse 23 is that Jesus is sufficient, all sufficient. The gospel is not Jesus plus something or Jesus plus someone or Jesus plus an additional teaching. No. It's just Jesus. He is enough. And think about this. If Jesus is not all sufficient, then our salvation would be deficient. The concern we need to address today is whether we're taking Paul at his word and and following through Because the threat is real, and Paul's challenge is direct. Continue to believe. Stand firm. Don't drift. The threat posed to the first century church is no different than the threat posed to the 21st century church. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ will always be undermined, will always be doubted. But as followers of Jesus, Paul is telling us we have got to remain vigilant to this truth. Don't let false teaching... Don't let worldly presuppositions, don't let postmodernism, don't let secular philosophies corrupt us. Jesus is more than just a good man. Jesus is more than just a great teacher. He is more than a prophet. He is more than a religious leader. And you know what? He's a whole lot more than a swear word too. He is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. No man comes to the Father but by him. This is our hope of the gospel. Paul is saying that we must remain faithful, continue to believe, don't waver, stop doubting, stand firm in the truth, even when you stand alone. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus came to do what he said he was going to do. Jesus is all-sufficient, and his blood has reconciled you. And his blood reconciled Barbie, too. She touched her family, her church, and her community in amazing ways. A few years back, she was diagnosed with cancer and lost the battle quickly. The last Eight years of her life were spent in pure devotion to the God who rescued her from her sin and reconciled her back to him. One woman at her memorial said, you know, our church sends a lot of people on missions trips to Mexico and elsewhere, but that Barbie, she was a missionary right here in this town. A life lived in opposition found new position in Christ. A life offering shelter to others ultimately found her true refuge in Jesus. A life reconciled to God boldly declared, Jesus is all sufficient. And she embraced this powerful truth that there is no sin too small that God will overlook, yet there is no sin too big that Jesus did not overcome. And she remembered what she was before Christ so that she could rejoice in what she became in Christ. 
Many, many people knew Barbie as friend. A few others knew her as co-worker. A handful of little ones knew her as grandma. One brother knew her as sister. Her parents knew her as daughter. God knows her as reconciled, holy, blameless, precious child. But I knew her as mom. There is no better Mother's Day message. We're all like Barbie. And maybe you're here today and you're feeling like Barbie did. That some things that you have done, some things that you have been a part of disqualifies you from the love of God and it's just not true. Maybe today will be a new day for you. You're going to walk out of here different than when you came in. Because you're going to be like, if Barbie can change because of Christ, then I can too. Uh, maybe for some of you, you, you came in and you're like, yeah, I have accepted Christ, uh, but I continue to go back to my old self. And so today, like Barbie, you're going to continue to live differently. You're going to make a commitment, a stand today to be like, no, I'm going to continue to live in the righteousness that God provides, not because of who I am, because of who he is. Or, or maybe today you've been challenged by someone like Barbie who began to live differently because of what Christ had done for her. And she became a different mom, coworker, friend, neighbor, church attender. And maybe you're gonna walk out of here saying, that's gonna be me. The choice now is yours, just like it was for Barbie, to say, what will I do with the good news, the message of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to read about truth, but to see truth personified in Barbie. Father, thank you for the life and the legacy that she has left through her daughter, Hester. And I pray, Father, that as sons and daughters of the King, that you would allow us to receive who you are and to live in such a way that brings you honor and glory, not because of anything we've done, because of everything that you have and continue to do for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.